All right, we've got our third through eighth graders up with us today. It's pretty awesome. Um, need some help from someone that's like fifth grade, fourth grade, third grade. How about how many days does it take to get the Earth around the sun? Anyone can know that? 365. Guess if I had a prize. If I had a prize, I don't. I'll get you some. I'll get you some. That was good. 365 days approximately to get around the sun. Every once in a while, you throw in a leap year, a 29th day in February, because it doesn't quite add up, right? But pretty much, 365 days, um, that's how long, that's how much time it takes for our planet to go around the sun one time. Funny thing, time, you've probably heard me talk before, if you've been around a while, that there are two Greek words in the New Testament used for time. They are chronos, from the Greek uh, word comes familiar words like chronology, right? Like the order of things, or chron- chronometer, like a watch is a chronometer, right? Chronos time refers to, to something that you can quantify. Uh, so chronos keeps track of things like minutes and hours and days and months and years. It's a measurement for time past. It's a statement of the location in the present time. Like today is what. June 23rd, 2019. That's a chronos statement. And it gives us a way to measure the quantity of expectation for the future. So, you know, cliche, you're in the car and the kids are saying, are we there yet? You know, in their mind, if you say five minutes, that is a chronological statement about how much. Now, that says nothing about the quality of the time in the car. It's just when we're going to get there. Uh, I met Corianne Shelton. Her name was Shelton before. Um, on May 20th, 1995. That is a chronos time statement. The other Greek word for time is kairos, and kairos refers less to the quantity of time and more about the quality of time. So uh, in chronos time, I met Corianne Shelton on May 20th, 1995, but in kairos time, May 20th, 1995 was the day I met Corianne Shelton, the love of my life, my future wife the one who makes my knees weak, the one who is my ministry partner, right? So that's a, that's a more of a Kairos statement and some brownie points. Where is it? <laughs> Kairos is more than the dates and times. It's the emotions and the feelings and the, and the meaning. Kairos is the so what of the chronos, right? The, 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 the value of the time that we spend. And so the Bible uses these two terms, chronos and kairos, for times that tells about in Scripture. And most often when God is doing something significant, something new, something out of the ordinary, when God is, as we say, on the move, those events are referred to as kairos moments. Notice I said kairos moments are usually out of the ordinary Moses and the burning bush, for example, is a kairos moment. Bushes don't normally burn and not burn up. I've never seen that before, right? So that's, that's out of the ordinary. God usually does not appear to people in burning bushes. Furthermore, when God does these out of the ordinary things in scripture, when these kairos moments occur, they usually are the start of something much bigger, than that moment itself. So as cool as a burning bush was, the result of that Kairos moment was much more than a one-off like miracle trick that God was trying to impress Moses with. The result was the beginning of a movement, the initiation of God's rescue plan, the deliverance or the exodus of the people of Israel. 
From that one burning bush kairos moment, we get the creation of the nation of Israel, the people of God from whom Jesus would be born. Most of us and most of life is lived in the mundane, in ordinary time. In fact, we are in ordinary time right now. Our tablecloth is green. Season of Pentecost kind of runs into ordinary time. It's the longest season of the Christian calendar because that's where most of life is lived. Christmas and Easter are special because they're extraordinary. But we often live in the ordinary. And once in a while, when the Kairos time is right, God moves in powerful ways that we get to participate in. In the book of Acts, many such Kairos moments are described. So many amazing moments of God that if we don't understand what kind of book we're reading when we're reading Acts, we might be fooled into thinking that the Christian life should always be spectacular and fireworks and ground-shaking and all kinds of stuff. But miracles, which are by definition of being a miracle, are exceptional, not ordinary, not occurring very often. So in reality, the, the book of Acts compresses history. It isn't interested in telling us so much the chronos time or how long things took or the order in which things happened. It is much more interested in telling us the kairos history. Most of the ordinary things of life are cut out of the book of Acts, which it's already long enough, right? Like how I'm glad there's not whole chapters on what did Peter eat for dinner? Unless, you know, he's told not to eat kosher. That was a big deal. That was a Kairos moment. We are left to experience this, the, the spiritual reality of how and why the spirit of the living God worked in and through the church and through the opposing forces and powers to the people of God, spreading them into the world with the message of Jesus. Now, for the past few weeks, we have been walking through an extended storyline that includes Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5. Kairos moments all over the places. The risen and ascended Jesus heals this crippled man in Acts chapter 3 through the apostles. His power is released through John and Peter. And then Peter and John begin to preach about the hope of resurrection for all people through faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit then fills the disciples of Jesus with boldness for proclaiming the good news. And the place where they're meeting shook. And I like how one commentator puts it, the ground shook as though the Spirit were quivering with joy that the apostles in the oppression asked not to crush their enemies from God or, or asked not for more power to defeat their enemies. But you know what they asked for? For boldness in proclaiming the word of God. And he says, I think the ground shook with the spirit quivering with joy. And at the end of chapter four, we read about how the church was filled with the spirit. And as a result of being filled with the spirit, they were practicing radical hospitality. And some of the wealthy among them sold tracts of land and houses and property, and such to the point where uh, a few thousand of them among this group of Christians, none of them had any need of housing or food because they shared. Things seemed to be going great, but then some marginal disciples named Ananias and Sapphira attempt to seek glory for themselves uh, by by giving a portion of, of the money they had sold to the apostles under the 
false pretense that they were giving all the money that they had, had received. And they tried to lie to God, and they died, like, instantly. And if you're like, that's still so crazy, um, and you weren't here last week, I preached on it last week, the sermon's online, and if you heard that last week one, and you still think it's crazy, so do I. We can talk about it some other time. It's crazy. They died instantly. And again, that is out of the ordinary, exceptional. God is holy, so when you lie to his spirit-filled church, you lie to him. That is a scary Kairos moment. Not all Kairos moments are super happy. And this evening, we continue the saga of these Kairos moments coming together. Ananias and Sapphira have died, and great fear has come over the whole church because the holiness of God was unleashed among them. That's where we pick up the story this evening. Now that we have a little bit of the context, uh, if you're able, please rise as we read the word together. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 26. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them, however, because the people still held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities of the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick, were afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, And they were all filled with jealousy. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak, and they began to teach. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house uh, for, for them to be brought out. But the officers who came did not find them in prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside." Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would become of this. But someone came and reported to them, those men that you put in prison, well, they're standing in the temple right now teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. For they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Lord, thank you for your good word. We, again, are confronted with so much dissonance with time and distance and language. Help us to understand what Luke is trying to tell us through these words and what you, in the power of your spirit, are telling us now. Amen. You may be seated. We kind of started our 
time together, this sermon time, talking about the difference between chronos time and kairos time. And this section in Acts chapter 5 is definitely recording a kairos moment. The spirit of the living God is unleashed, breaking into time and space through the apostles into the early church. Let's just take a look at some of the details of the text before we circle back around and, and dig a little deeper. Signs and wonders are taking place all around in the, in the people as they worshiped in the temple court. Solomon's portico, as it mentioned, where these things are happening, that's in the uh, outer courts of the temple. So people are, are being added to their number on a regular basis. People are coming to faith in Jesus, but not just faith, to G, in, in faith in Jesus, but also commitment. They're coming to faith in Jesus, and they're coming into commitment to Jesus' people, the way or the church. So full of faith were people that they even dragged their sick. So like you can imagine Peter is walking, I don't know, in the temple courts and the sun, I don't know, sideways. And so the shadow's going over here. And people are so filled with faith that they're dragging their paralytic friends or those who need healing or those who are uh, possessed by unclean spirits. And they're just like, let's just at least try and get in his shadow. And maybe we'll be healed just by being in proximity to this man through whom the spirit of God is working. That sounds so weird. Did a little digging. Some people in, uh, in ancient Greece thought that your shadow was somehow connected to your inner person. So, um, I don't know, uh, I was thinking like the Peter Pan movie, right? The one with Robin Williams. Like, don't the shadows kind of have their own, have their own kind of animation? Anyway, I was thinking about that. But uh, when we're walking down the streets, Samara sometimes like to try and jump on my head, on my shadow. Like, now I'm not going to let her do that. Like, what if it's doing something deep inside my soul? No, but in the ancient world, they thought that maybe your, your inner person was connected somehow with your shadow. That's maybe where this idea comes from. Uh, regardless, uh, we also see parts in the Bible where there's these uncommon moments of grace. Um, for example, oh, the woman who touches Jesus' robe, when like he's not even looking, he's not even... He, he, this is so weird, right? He's, he's, he's teaching and he's, he's looking this direction. A woman comes up, touches his robe, and like power comes out of him like he's some kind of capacitor full of charge of spirit energy, and he just comes out by, by touch. And, and even he seems a little bit confused. And, and you got to wonder, like, sometimes does God just know that a person's faith is just so ripe and rich that he has mercy? And like, that's not the normal way we're healed, right? Like, we don't just go touch on Jesus' robe. And um, another example is later on in the book of Acts, people are apparently healed by touching the handkerchief that Paul, the apostle, had touched. And, and we see that. We also see things in, in, in more modern times or uh, church history long after the apostles where... Um, you know, regardless of what our thoughts are about relics and things like that, like there's some kind of hard to deny facts that sometimes like weird stuff happens. Like people are healed by touching the, a vial of the breast milk of the Virgin Mary. Like that could even be, like we could even have that, but like it's just sometimes doesn't God do crazy amazing stuff because of someone's faith? I think he's merciful to us. I think he's merciful to us. And that's what's going on here. So much of this Kairos moment of God's spirit breaking out among the people is happening. That crazy stuff is going down. Extraordinary, non-normal stuff's going down. Now, we don't know from this text if passing through Peter's shadow actually healed anyone, but the sense is just as powerful. God is moving in such a way that people just wanted to be close to him and what was going on. 
To sum up the signs and wonders of the first section, people were being healed through the work of Jesus through the apostles, the sick and the lame, and those who were oppressed by unclean spirits, unclean or evil spiritual forces. All of them were being healed and set free. By now, you've probably noticed that both in the Bible and in our contemporary life, whenever God is at work through his people, there will be resistance. There just always is. The evil one had already tried to derail this little early church by trying to corrupt them from the inside by getting to Ananias and Sapphira. Now, notice the evil one. It says earlier in, in chapter 5 that, he, that the evil one filled Ananias and Sapphira, their hearts. And notice that he did not make them like demigorgons with like crazy slimy teeth and stuff. He didn't make them obviously like the most evil beings on the earth. Instead, what he did is he made them compromised, half-hearted, not fully committed. And the Lord protected in that moment the church, the fledgling church from that influence. But in our passage this evening, we see another threat. This time, it's from the outside. The powers and authorities of the state and religion have conspired to try and stop the spread of the word of God. And they do this by by force, by arresting the apostles. And in this case, the evil one plays on, I believe, the insecurity of the Sadducees and the leaders because the text says that they were like insanely jealous. I mean, they're the keepers of the temple. They're the ones who are trying to moderate peace. They have wealth and position because they have buddied up to the Roman Empire. And as long as they don't let weird stuff go down, like people getting healed by people's shadows and weird stuff, as long as they keep it straight and narrow and people say their prayers in the temple but not out in the streets, and as long as they don't get too political, everything will be fine. But now you have these unauthorized dudes And they're healing people with words and apparently even by proximity. And it is getting sideways fast. And so what do they do? They try and take control by arresting these men. Now, of course, we know what happens. God rescues them. In the quiet of night, something else extraordinary happens. When's the last time an angel just came and bailed you out of a situation, maybe more often than you know, by the way. Sometimes I'm, I, I, I'm convinced that there's hidden ones. But this one is an overt case of angel intervention. And he doesn't, he doesn't let them rot in there. Like the angel comes in the quiet of night and unlocks the prison doors. And he doesn't just set them free for freedom's sake. He sets them free with a task, right? And he says, I want you to go into the temple and proclaim the message, the whole message, the text says, of this life. So early in the morning, the apostles, they're already out in the temple proclaiming. By the way, in the ancient world, um, people rose early and knocked off early, right? So um, uh, we have records that are from outside the Bible, a real creative term, extra-biblical literature, it's called. And uh, so we have all these historical records of, of clients coming to their patrons, and they come early in the morning. They come at sunrise. They come, and so, so the patron would see a bunch of clients. Maybe it's people working their land that have a grievance or whatever, and, and they see them you know, from sun up, 6 o'clock, till, till 10, 30, 11 when they siesta, and then they knock off 
in the late afternoon and they're done. So, so the morning time, the crack of dawn, that's when people are out doing their, they're going to the market and they're doing their stuff. And so the apostles are out at the crack of dawn teaching in the temple and the Sadducees, the privilege there, you know, they're just getting their coffee and then they call their Sanhedrin um, and, you know, they call it together. All right, well, what are we going to do with these guys? And so then they call to the jailers. All right, bring those dudes in. <laughs> like, I can just, I, I, it's just fun to imagine, right? Like, you never want to read into the text. That's bad exegesis. But can we just for a minute, like, <sighs> you know, they, they run back in like, oh my gosh, you tell them. No, you tell them. Like, like these guys are hardcore. They're like not there. And we talked to the guards. Like, they were there all night. It's the same dudes on shift and, and the the prisoners are gone. I mean, this is crazy, right? Divine intervention. They, they, they don't know what to do. They, they come back perplexed. And sometime shortly after this scene, we don't know the chronos, right? But we know the kairos. And here's the kairos moment. Somebody else runs in and says, those guys, they're teaching the people right now. And they're in the temple. They're in your hood Teaching the people while you're in here, not teaching the people, making a stink about God's work. So the captain of the guard goes to get them. First century historian Josephus tells us that at this time period, the temple guard, the captain of the temple guard and his cronies were very hard on people. They would often beat them before even getting to the trial. And then they would just say, hey, they were resisting arrest. Um, Not a lot has changed, apparently. Um, but this is, this is taking place in this time. So these people are notoriously brutal law enforcers, okay? Um, and in this instance, Luke adds the parenthetical details that when these apostles are brought back by the temple guard, they are not taken with violence. And the parentheses, it says, because these guards feared that they might be stoned. Like that's how popular... Uh, a movement, God's movement was, was going on, that the people saw God moving through the apostles, and so that even the captain of the temple guard was cautious in taking them under arrest, not the typical hardcore beatings. So God is working in this Kairos moment, and the powers and authorities of the world are trying to stop him. Uh, I don't need to tell you that this does not go well for them. Okay? Just a little bit of history, in 70 AD, Rome sacks Jerusalem again. We're like so fed up with you guys. They crush the temple. And the Sadducees after 70 AD are basically nowhere in the history books anymore. Their whole sect, their whole uh, social class removed. And that's when you see the rise of the rabbi and the rise of the Pharisees after 70 AD. The Pharisees existed in the time of Jesus was teaching, but they really come to prominence after those official Sadducees are out of the way. They are gone after 70 AD. So their resistance against the people of God does not go well for them. And just another like fun piece of evidence, right? Like It doesn't go well for them because we are here, like thousands of miles away from there, and a couple thousand years later, and all I talk about on Sundays and at my Bible study and a lot of you from time to time is Jesus, like we're still doing it. Okay. You can't stop God's will, 
but the powers of darkness will try. All of these healings and jailbreaks and visits by angels are extraordinary in the sense that they don't ordinarily happen. They seem to happen at opportune moments in the history where God is doing a new thing to move the story forward. A bit of the future, a bit of the kingdom of heaven in its fullness is bound to break in and burts and spurts and, and pieces, right, from time to time. And that seems to be what's happening here. A bit of the future breaks into the present. And these signs and wonders are, are supposed to validify Jesus's reign. They are signs of encouragement for those who follow Jesus and signs of doom for those who stand in the way. Now, now we don't know so much stuff. We don't know why, for example. We don't know why God chooses when to intervene and for whom. We don't know why sometimes Peter's shadow heals people randomly, it seems like, when at other times earnest prayers of the people seem to do nothing to people who are deeply committed to the Lord. We don't know why God orchestrates jailbreaks for some people at some times, and at other times, James, the brother of Jesus, dies. Stephen is stoned to death. Paul is locked up for two years. Paul gets broken out of prison one time, but then he's locked up for two years. Eventually, Paul and Peter would die for their faith. Like, we don't know why God does these things. And we see that when God's power breaks in in these extraordinary ways, people freak out. Those who don't fully commit in this story wisely kept their distance. The manifestations of God's power might be extraordinary, but that power, that holiness is there all the time. Following Jesus isn't like, should I join Costco or not? Following Jesus isn't like, YMCA or Country Club or Bellingham Athletic Club or where do I take my kids to swim lessons? Do we, you know, it's not like all of these choices are pretty equally good and you just get to choose one and oh, good for you, I go to this one. Like, like that's not what this story is telling us. Following Jesus requires all of us, our whole being. Why? Because Jesus wants to redeem all of us, our whole being. Following Jesus isn't a pragmatic choice between more than one good options. It is the way, it is the life. Jesus is the life. And, and, and that's really where I want to focus the rest of our, our time together this evening. What was so important in this Kairos moment that the angel came in and broke these men out of jail? It was this. They were instructed to proclaim, and I'm quoting from the passage now, the whole message of this life. I love that before this movement was called Christianity by some Syrian Christians in Antioch, or some, no, they weren't Christians actually, just Syrians in Antioch, uh, and before detailed statements of faith and doctrine, all of which have their place in theological history, I love that when the angel of God breaks these apostles out of prison, he tells them to preach the whole message of this life. It would have been kind of easier if God, through his angel, would have given us the nomenclature. Like, God, what do you want to call this movement? Doesn't do it. Doesn't call us the church. Doesn't call us Christians. Doesn't call us Jesus freaks. Doesn't do any of it. Just, just preach the way of this life. What are we called to, sisters and brothers? 
It is not to follow primarily a religion or a set of rules. We're called primarily into a new life. And that life is revealed in following Jesus. So many times, and I've probably been guilty of this uh, over the times as well, so many times when people communicate the gospel of Jesus or talk about joining a church, they're faced first and foremost with a list of things of what not to do. The way things are communicated sometimes is that the primary thing Jesus came to do was to inform us, you're a sinner and you should not do that anymore. Don't do those things anymore, right? I hope you've never heard that from me because that isn't supported in Scripture. Don't get me wrong. Following Jesus, the way of life, will lead to purity and to holiness. And I believe it will lead to purity and holiness that you would never get by trying not to sin anymore. It just doesn't work But the main message of the way of Jesus is that Jesus leads us to this new life, eternal life, the Christ life. Now, you may recall before the sermon, our scripture reading from Christine uh, was from Luke 4, 14 through 36. And I wanted that scripture read because I believe it will help us get to the core of what the message of this life is. In Luke 4, Jesus gives his first public teaching. It's during a worship service at his local synagogue. And as was the custom, different qualified people could come up and share the scriptures. And so Jesus gets up and shares a portion of Psalm 61. He reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel or the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. For the most part, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And in Isaiah 61, we have what many scholars believe to be one of the famous servant songs, pieces of poetry that Isaiah the prophet wrote, where the speaker is not actually the prophet, but this mysterious servant of God, a Messiah or an anointed Savior. Now, I want you to to pay attention to the pronouns. Again, remember pronouns are like I's and me's and you's. They're talking about the people in the sentence, right? So the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Those, those pronouns, as Jesus gets up to say this scripture, he's quoting it, but he's, he's fulfilling it. He's embodying it. The speaker here is more than a mere prophet. It is someone who is promised to come in the future, someone who who will accomplish what he's also proclaiming. So this is one of the passages that people in the synagogue, when Jesus is saying these words, they would have been very familiar with it because um, it was written in a time when, when Israel was in captivity to Babylon. And when Jesus was on earth ministering, The Israelites were in captivity, basically on house arrest, if you will, by the Roman Empire. And so during this time of oppression, where did they look? They looked to the time when Israel was in captivity to Babylon because they could relate to that. 
They could see the groans of the people. They could read what the prophets were saying, the promise of deliverance and rescue. And they said, yes, we relate to that because we're being oppressed right now. They were looking forward to the good news for the poor. And the poor in this setting is not merely, although it includes it, it's not merely a lack of money or a lack of clothing or a lack of shelter. It means miserable, afflicted, in need without ability to meet that need, whatever the need. That's what poor means. The poor in the Hebrew scriptures were often the pious poor, the meek and the humble, who were oppressed because of the greed and the evil of the powerful. That's the poor. Those who, were, uh, uh, who tried to live God's way in a culture that was bent on living in, in ways and thinking that were contrary to God. Those are the poor in the Hebrew scriptures. If you claim to follow Jesus and you don't feel a little bit out of place in this world, you might want to check your allegiances. If you claim to follow Jesus, the way of life, and you are perfectly at home in the thinking and the power structures of the world and its system of ethics, or how the world conceives of of our worth and identity, if you feel completely at home about how our world is taking care of those things, You might be following the way of the world and not the way of life because there's a rub there. Those things come into tension. Jesus came to give life. Jesus came to free us from captivity to the ways of living that lead us to death. And so Jesus quotes this Isaiah passage saying, he sent me to proclaim release to the captives. That is, captives from social oppression and also captives from our own sin. Captives from the results of years of bad choices. Captives from the consequences of the evil of others done to us. Captives from debt and captives from illness. Captives from addiction and captives from warped ways of living. He came to set us free from captivity. Recovery of sight to the blind. Yes, of course, physical blindness, but also, and perhaps more importantly, spiritual blindness. He came to open our eyes from the inability to see the will of God clearly. The haze and distortion that comes from our own sinful perspective and skewed view of reality uh, that the world feeds us on a daily basis. Like Jesus came to clarify, to rub the mirrors, the lenses off so we can see the way that God sees. Jesus came proclaiming life, freedom to the oppressed in the favorable year of the Lord. And he closes the scroll and gives it back to the attendant. And he sits down. And the eyes of all the people in the synagogue are on him, fixed on him, says the word. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, up until that point, Every good person in that synagogue was like, yeah, preach that. Freedom! Freedom to the oppressed, and we all know who the oppressor is. It's Rome, right? Amazing. But it wasn't so much that Jesus proclaimed the message of life. It was more that the preacher himself was the message of life. Jesus wasn't merely proclaiming good news like I try and do. He was preaching that he himself was fulfilling the good news, something you and I can never do. 
For those willing to die to their compromised lives in order to follow Jesus, the way of life, they were met with joy and salvation, a a yes and an amen. But many were not willing to receive Jesus, and they tried to to push him off a cliff. Like, they really tried to do that. (laughs) And just like the angel released the prisoners, like some kind of secret magic way where the guards didn't know, so we just get this line that Jesus passed through the crowd. I'd love to see that. I have no idea what that's like. Sometimes I've heard like those macho Christian preachers, like, yeah, Jesus was buff, and he just like walked through. Sorry, I don't know that that's how they talk, but um, I don't know that that's the way. I think it's more like spiritual, magical awesomeness than that. Anyhow, where am I at? <laughs> they tried to push him off a cliff. Now, okay, now check this out. Jesus dies, right? We know that. He's resurrected. He ascends into heaven. We had Ascension Sunday. You remember the importance of that. And then by his spirit, the way of life, he comes and he fills all those who place their faith in him, who pledge their allegiance to him. Okay? And in our passage in Acts chapter 5, what do we see? We see Jesus working through a spirit-filled church, setting captives free, right? He's freeing the sick from their sickness and the spiritually oppressed from their oppression. He brings social outcasts into community, giving them family. And yet, not all would receive Jesus through their message. And what did they do? They try and silence them. They tried to push Jesus off a cliff. They try and lock up his apostles. And so, we're really confronted with the same choice. Will we receive the way of this life, the new life of Jesus, which is, no doubt about it, at odds with the way of the world? Will we receive that life? Or will we be the ones compromising and resisting in order to preserve our own comfort? I, I'm convicted myself and I want, to, I want to say, church, let's, you and me, like you and me together, you and me together, like let's run toward the voice of Jesus who calls us into fill, fullness of both life now and life forever. It seems to me that's the logical choice. The tear, right, the, the, the tear of allegiances, it, it takes such courage to go all in. Because there's some parts of our lives that are just so comfortable and so secure, even though they might be killing us. We can't imagine a life any different. And, and as, we, as we move now, as we transition into a time of healing prayer, uh, I want to offer these moments. Um, you might want to come forward for a, a physical ailment. You might want to come forward for, uh, for, for something that you just... God, help me to give more of myself or help set me free of this thing that's tripping me up.